the book of Psalms, Psalm 145. We are uh, in between sermon series right now. So we are taking this week to look at a, a psalm, uh, Psalm 145. Let's prepare our hearts for the reading of God's word. I will exalt you, my God and King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so, so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the splen- glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall And lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you. And you give them their food at their proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. And faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him. And to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. This is the word of God. A few uh, things about this psalm. First, this psalm is what's called an acrostic. Uh, Each line of poetry starts with a new, the next letter of the alphabet. Unfortunately, that's lost in translation. It doesn't come out in in, uh, the English. But I think it's worth mentioning anyway because it adds another layer of the the great uh, care and skill with which the psalmist... uh, composes and expresses, uh, crafts his expression of praise to God, that because God is so worthy that he gives God his best in this expressing of his praise to God. And second, it is a, uh, more evident probably, it is a psalm of praise. 
There's lots of different types of psalms in the book of Psalms. There's psalms of lament that express suffering. Uh, There's psalms of confession that confess sin to God and ask for his forgiveness. There's royal psalms, messianic psalms. There's psalms of deliverance which seek his help in difficult uh, situations of life or from enemies. There's wisdom psalms which reflect on God's Way, uh, ways and uh, his word and, and ways and the goodness of those things. And then there is psalms of praise, which um, are what they sound like, psalms that express praise to God in which the, the idea of praising God runs through and through and is, is uh, front and center. And uh, that's what, it, throughout the psalm, there are lots of different words uh, used to express this that are really basically synonyms, all, all uh, meaning basically the same thing. Exalt, praise, extol, commend, speak of, tell of, proclaim, celebrate, joyfully sing. Uh, those may have some variation of meaning here and there, but basically they are synonyms as if the psalmist got to pull out every stop of his vocabulary to get the idea across and to get across how important this idea is, the importance of praising God. And that the third, the third thing about this psalm then is that in this, these expressions of praise, this psalm alternates back and forth between uh, calls to praise God or, or examples of praising God, his own example of praising God, or calls for uh, everything in all creation to praise God. It alternates between that and reasons to praise God. Uh, and so the reason for that is that praise doesn't just arise out of a vacuum and that we don't just praise God in a uh, uh, an unthinking way, but that praise is the result of reflecting upon and knowing who God is. Praise arises out of knowing God. It doesn't arise out of an empty mind or an empty heart or an empty soul, but arises from the knowledge of God filling those things such that the more the knowledge of God fills our heart, mind, and soul, the more praise ought to flow from our lips unto him. And so the psalm then is filled with reasons we ought to praise God, reasons uh, related to who God is, and reasons related to what God has done. And after you read the psalm, what comes across clearly is that the psalmist is convinced, utterly convinced, that there's nothing about God, nothing about who God is, nothing about what God has done that doesn't warrant eternal praise. Nothing about him that doesn't want warrant eternal praise and he gives reason after reason to praise God he's great let's just sort of I'm just going to list through some that we see through the psalm that God is great God is worthy he is mighty he's majestic his works are wonderful his works are awesome God is filled with abundant goodness he is righteous then in verse 8, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, 
and rich in love. That's, that's part of God's own self-expression of who he is. And a very uh, uh, quoted verse in the Old Testament. God is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. He's trustworthy in all his promises. Keep more, more reasons through the psalm. He's faithful in all he does. He upholds the falling and lifts up the lowly. He generously provides every good thing that any creature on this planet enjoys. He sustains everything that has life in this world. He is near to us. He hears us. He fulfills and satisfies us. Not just our physical hunger, but our soul's longings, and he watches over us. All these reasons are reasons the psalmist lists to give reason so that we, in contemplating all these things about God, would praise him, would see how worthy of praise he is. And as if that's not enough, one of verse he, he goes on and, and says, you know, as much as I can say about God, it still isn't enough. As much as I could think about God to praise him, it's still not enough. And in case anyone would make the mistake of thinking that, you know, this, in the, psalmi, the, the psalmist, uh, you know, in case anyone would make this mistake of thinking I've given you every reason to praise God, that I've fully, sufficiently, exhaustively, perfect, perfectly laid out all the reasons to praise God, just in case you might think that. No, don't think that. Verse 3, one of my favorite verses here. Great is the Lord... And most worthy of praise, his greatness no one can fathom. His greatness no one can fathom. God's greatness is so great that it cannot be fully explored, fully comprehended, fully grasped. It's unfathomable because God is infinite. We never know. We never reach the end, never reach the limits of our understanding and comprehending and apprehending of the greatness of God. It's like, you know, if you're digging to know God, you never sort of hit rock bottom of that. You never reach the end of knowing more about who God is and what God is like, and what reason there is to praise him. And so he's recognizing that his psalm and all the expression, all the reasons it gives to praise God, it's like sort of like a, a thimble full of water compared to the ocean, right? You know, there's a lot of things in this universe that really, you know, seem to be unfathomable. You think of the, the vastness of the universe itself. But even that is finite, has its limits. And, but even as vast as it is, that does not compare to the unfathomableness of God's greatness. And what that means is that this verse describes what is sometimes referred to as the incomprehensibility of God. That, that God is incomprehensible. And that, that doesn't mean, what that doesn't mean is that we can't know something about God. 
What it means is that we can't know everything about God. It doesn't mean we can't genuinely know God. It means we can't know him exhaustively and perfectly. And that's why the Apostle Paul in his prayer in Ephesians 3 is praying that God's people would have the strength to grasp how wide and how high and deep is the the love of God. And he goes on to say, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Isn't that interesting? He's recognizing we can know it and praying that we would know it, but at the same time admitting that it's beyond the, the grasp and the ability of our knowledge. God's greatness is way beyond the capacity of our minds to fully grasp. And so what that, that means a couple things, two things in particular. One, it means that there will always be some mystery with God, right? There will always be some mystery to our knowledge of God. In, in fact, the, the more we learn about God, the more we realize how much more we have to know about God. The more we ha- learn about him, the more we realize how much more there is to learn. It's like if you, you know, if you get a telescope and again, you know, you look at the, the universe That experience doesn't make you feel very big and smart like you understand it all. (laughs) That experience makes you feel very small and limited, and it's meant to inspire awe and wonder and the recognition that the more you would explore that, the more you'd realize how much about it you don't know. And that's what our knowledge of God is like. The more we know him, the more we discover about him, the more we realize it leads us to awe. And I think it's meant to remind us then and to help us to embrace the, the reality, the unavoidable reality that when it comes to an infinite, eternal God who made us, there will always be some mystery about him. And again, that doesn't mean we don't know God genuinely and truly. God reveals himself to us, reveals himself truly to us, so we can truly know things about him. But there's a lot about him and his ways that we will only begin to understand, and there's a lot about him that we will not understand, and that ought to, rather than worry us, that ought to reassure us. Not only ought to cause us to worship, but it ought to reassure us because if you worship a God in whom there is no mystery, who you can fully wrap your little brain around, that ought to worry you. You should be suspicious of that God. That is a God who is too small and too human. And the fact that our God, there is mystery, that he is incomprehensible, that his greatness is unsearchable, unfathomable. He's bigger than us. That ought to reassure us and that ought to lead us to awe and worship. It's a consequence of his being infinite. And the second thing is that, well, the second thing I think I already said, that it leads us to awe and worship. There's never mystery to God. It leads us to awe and worship. Worship, that's why the psalmist can so enthusiastically say, God, I will worship you forever and ever. 
He says all the days of his life there in, uh, you know, um, every day, verse two, I will praise you, but even his whole lifespan isn't enough. And his longing and yearning and commitment is to praise God forever and ever. Because if God is truly, if God really does have unsearchable greatness, then even for all eternity, we will never run out of reasons to praise this God. Praise and worship of God can never get boring. And you can never finish the task of it because he's infinitely worthy and he has unfathomable greatness. One writer asked this, can a small bottle contain an entire ocean? And we are that small bottle. And we can't, the more we worship God, the more we become aware of that smallness of us and that vastness of his. And the more we are humbled and the more we, are, we worship. And so the psalmist gives reason after reason to praise God and then to make sure you don't think he's given you every reason, he says there's infinite more reasons. His greatness is unsearchable. But then there's one little important word that's in, very crucial to remember in all of this. Right there in verse 1, that little easy to overlook maybe word my i will exalt you my god the king and this one little uh, word makes a world of difference because this uh, reminds us that there's an important difference between just knowing a lot of things about god and knowing god as my God. It's the difference between knowing about God, which is good, important, necessary, but still not enough. It's the difference between knowing a lot about God and knowing God as my God. It's the difference between being able to acknowledge that God is love, or maybe even to write a, an essay on the intricacies uh, of what God's love is like, but it's another thing to know that, that that love that surpasses knowledge is mine, that he's given it to me, and to live with the joy and peace and humility and confidence that comes from that personal knowing of that God who is love. It's another thing altogether to commune by faith with this God who is unfathomably great and to worship and love him in response to that. Because his, his praise is informed with all kinds of reasons to praise God, and those are important and necessary, but it's not merely information that leaves his mind and heart and soul unaffected. Because that little word, my, is a reality to him that leads that information about God into a personally transformative experience with God through knowing God in a personal way. And that is the question for us. Is that little word, my, a reality for us? <clears throat> the psalmist knows this God is his God, and it's his commitment and it's his conviction then to use his heart, his voice, his heart, his soul, his mind, his all to give praise to this God every day of his life 
into eternity. And he, see, he says that in verse 1. And in, in the beginning of the psalm, he starts with his own single solitary voice as an example of praising God. It's sort of as if to say, no matter what else, whether anyone else in this whole world joins me, I will praise God every day of my life because nothing else compares to him. Nothing else is as good and satisfying as him. Nothing else is so worthy as him. And so I will praise him. It's his conviction and commitment. He begins with I, and certainly his praise by itself is pleasing to God and acceptable to God, and certainly his praise by itself is personally satisfying and fulfilling to him, but at the same time, what we see is that his praise by itself is utterly inadequate to express what the object of his praise is worth. That one voice, even when it's singing with all its uh, fervor and breath and uh, and that one mind, even when it's meditating with all its thoughts and that one heart, even when it's loving with all its strength and that one soul, even when it's delighting with all its might, even then, one voice is utterly inadequate to express all that God's worth and the psalmist recognizes that and so throughout the psalm he calls others to join him. He calls upon the people of God to join him. He calls upon the next generation of God to join him and finally he calls upon all people everywhere, all of creation, all creatures to join him because you know, in the psalm, we see that God is king, right? And God is king everywhere with no spatial or geographic or temporal bounds. And so if God's reign is everywhere and always, then he is king of all people everywhere and always. And all people everywhere and always then ought to and owe him praise because he is worthy. And so Psalm 1 starts with his one voice, I will praise God. And by the end of the psalm, you have verse 21, let every creature praise his holy name. And so um, a couple things we're going to look at here is that he, he uh, calls upon, he he's views this praise then as having sort of two purposes, uh, a, a purpose of edification within the people of God and then a purpose of proclamation to the world around him. And that's uh, what we see, that edifying purpose then in verse 4. He expresses that in this way, one generation commands your work to another. They tell of your mighty acts. And so some of the, phrase, some of the um, lines of this psalm, it's unclear whether it's expressing a promise of what will happen or a prayer uh, for that thing to happen. And this is one of those places, whether he's saying one generation will commend or let may one generation commend. Uh, but it really, it doesn't, I don't think it makes much difference either way. The psalmist is either uh, declaring that uh, one generation will do this or praying that it would happen. And either way, this is the, the prayer of faith and the expectation of God's faithfulness that the faith, faith in God will be passed from one generation to the next. 
Sort of like passing the baton of faith along to the next generation who will then carry it to the next after them. And aren't you glad then that the the psalmist prayed this prayer and that God was faithful to it? Because that's the reason we are here today. Because God was faithful to answer this prayer that, the, that the, the knowledge of God and the, the knowledge of what God has done would be passed along from generation to generation. And at the same time, as it gives us uh, uh, something to celebrate, it gives us a call and an obligation and a challenge at the same time, right? We need to do that. <laughs> we need to pray this prayer and we need to take upon ourselves this responsibility to pass the baton of faith and knowing and praising God, commending his works to the next generation. Uh, You know, we, we have a lot of the next generation here with us, don't we? And, and, uh, um, you know, we, we watched a, a video earlier that is the next generation. I, I debated if we really needed to show it in this context. We could have just showed it in youth group. But maybe it's just, a, if nothing else, it's a reminder for all of us to pray for that next generation and to do what we can to commend the faith to that next generation. You know, around here, we don't need too many reminders of that. We see and hear those reminders a lot, right? And I hope that when you hear or see those reminders of that next generation whom we are called to commend the faith unto, maybe when that next generation is making a little bit of noise during the sermon or running through the church, no running in church, kids. Uh, We can think of those things as distractions or annoyances or we can think of them as maybe God's reminder for us to pray that this prayer in this psalm would continue to be fulfilled by God's faithfulness. And when we hear of the, the needs for volunteers, for nursery and children's church, we can think of those things as, as obstacles, maybe. Or we consider them an opportunity God has placed before us to commend him to the next generation. And I do believe as a church, we try to take that call seriously. Um, but uh, this isn't the only way, that, that, though, to, to fulfill this, but one of the important ways we respond to this call is that some of us take the next generation home with us after church. And they see how we live and how we treat others and how we praise God and how we pray. And as I'm convinced that as important as things like a children's ministry and a youth ministry and a church are, that there's something more important. And that is the commending of the works of God and the faith, our faith in God to the next generation within the walls of a home, within the life of a family. By your example of praising God and showing what he's worth, by worshiping with your children, 
teaching them about God, reading God's word to them, these, these, <laughs> praying with and for them, things that aren't easy to do, but that I believe God can use. And of course, there's no guarantees <clears throat> that no matter how faithfully a parent do this, that the faith will always be taken up by, the ne- by every person in the next generation. That can be hard, that can be painful, but nevertheless, persevere in that. Commend God to your children by the way you live, by the way you exemplify the servant love of Christ. <clears throat> The psalmist then reflects on God's special grace to his people, and we see alternating in the psalm, God's special grace to his people. Uh, We see that uh, particularly in verse 10, your faithful people extol you, and then we see numerous ways in which God shows special grace and goodness and love to his own people. Those verses 17 through 20 is one of the places where we see that, where God's people have the nearness of God promised to them, where God's people are promised that he hears them when they cry out to him, where they're promised that they have the fulfillment of their desires for those who fear him. He hears and saves and watches over those who love him. See, those qualifiers there signal that those promises are for God's people, those who love him those who call to him in truth, those who fear him. And so the psalmist is recognizing that God's people have an especially high realization, a special uh, reception of, a special degree of, a special type of, a special focus of God's love upon them that no one else has anywhere because we have it through faith in Christ. Even though uh, we, we have his salvation, we have experienced the reality of his salvation, the restoration of his presence, the goodness of his fatherly love. We've seen the way God is compassionate to us in our lowliness. And I love that part of the psalm where it tells us, reminds us he's gracious and compassionate, that he loves the undeserving gives them what they don't deserve. And then again in verse 14, that this high and mighty king of all the universe upholds the falling and failing and lifts up those who are bowed down before him. He stoops down for the lowly. And isn't it true that often when we are at our lowest, we, most, we, we, we feel God's presence in the most powerful way? And that's because God is a compassionate God. And we know that in the deepest way through Christ, that Christ came down low for us, not just from heaven to earth, but all the way to the cross to stand in our place and take our sin and God's wrath so that we could be cleansed and forgiven and reconciled to God. And so the psalmist recognizes that God's people know God's love in a very special, very unique way. But he also recognizes that God's grace to this world doesn't end there, but that it spills over beyond just God's people to all creation. And so the psalmist then also sees not just an edifying purpose of praise, but an uh, evangelistic purpose of praise. In verse 10, he says, Your faithful people extol you. 
They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might. But then, uh, why do they do this? Well, one reason then goes on in verse 12, so that all people may know. All people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. You see, God's care and goodness and compassion and concern don't end in his special grace. They, 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 they go beyond that. And that's what sometimes is called God's common grace, where God has shown blessing after blessing and display of his goodness after display of his goodness to everyone, everything, everywhere. And we see this reinforced in the psalm, verse 9. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Verse 15 and 16. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their proper food, their, their food at the proper time. See, God is king everywhere and so God shows concern for everything that he is king over. He is good everywhere, good to everyone. He is good to this world. He is good to this world and he is good for this world, right? Maybe that sounds like an obvious statement, but let's not, let's, let's not buy into the idea that God is bad for the world, right? Let's not buy into this idea that God and God's rule and God's ways are bad for the world. Like he is some kind of poison that the world needs shielded from. That's why this psalmist so wants the, the, his people to proclaim God's praise so that all the world would be drawn into it. That, that's the lie of sin. That God is bad for this world. That, that puts the creator at odds with his creation. God, God's salvation, God's righteous ways, that is the greatest good this world could ever discover. And the only hope for this world. And the thing then that we proclaim to this world. And God's people know that in a special way. Uh, it's, it would be wrong, unbiblical to say that God loves everyone in the same way. His children, he loves in a pricelessly unique way. But it's also wrong to deny that there's some sense in which God has love for everything he's made, by which he shows some kind of kindness, compassion, goodness, generosity to everyone. Everyone breathes, right? Everyone eats and drinks and enjoys the warmth and light of the sun and the fruit and the beauty of the earth, right? That is God's common grace, his good and gracious gifts to all people. And what that means is that God even is good to his enemies and shows kindness and compassion to his enemies. That goodness that God shows, that kindness and compassion to all people means that God shows that goodness and kindness and compassion to those who sin against him, who deny him, who ignore him, dishonor him, despise him, insult him, grieve him, curse his name, fail to give him acknowledgement or thanks for that undeserved goodness which he has graciously poured out all around them. He's good even to those who wrong him. And he doesn't immediately give them the fullness of all their wrongs against him deserves. But he's patient 
and compassionate and gives them countless blessings that are meant to draw their hearts to him. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus draws attention to this. In chapter 5, he says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And hear the resonance with our psalm here. Because our Father in heaven, Jesus says, causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And then Jesus applies this principle in this way. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you only greet your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the application that Jesus draws in his Sermon on the Mount from this idea that God shows kindness and goodness and compassion to everyone he has made. The application he draws is that that's one way we should imitate God then. We should love even our enemies. One way we represent God's compassion and goodness to the world is following God's example and showing compassion and goodness to those who don't love us. by loving our enemies. And anyone who comes to Christ knows that God is a God who showed love to his enemies. Because even when we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. So if we know (laughs) what that means, then how can we not then have some compassion? The reason that we know God's love is because God graciously loved us when we were his enemies. And let's pray for God's strength then to have that compassion in our lives. Our Father, we give you thanks that you are a God who's worthy of praise. We give you a thanks that you are a God whose greatness is unsearchable. We pray that you would help us to see how great you are. Help us to praise you. Help us to commend your works to the next generation until Jesus returns. Help us to proclaim your greatness to this world around us that is in darkness until Jesus returns. All for your glory. And in his name we pray. Amen.